0: to get more prospects. right? Because even if they don't have enough, when they find it and they can teach them to understand that's how they should be addressing and helping the customer, then they get that motivation to go out and get more prospects because, wow, I get this.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I think people don't truly understand the value of what they're really offering. Do you know what I mean? They don't understand the impact, the ripple effect of what their product or service can do for a company. For example, I sell sales training right? That's one of my products. And so I I believe when I sell it, I'm not looking at selling the package. I'm looking at how, how it's going to impact your bottom line, how it's going to increase your revenue, reduce your costs or expand your market share. I'm looking at how I'm helping you not only stay in business, but keep people employed within your company. And those people in your company have families. So guess what? The fact that I'm helping you help your company helps families. That's the way I view the value of it.
0: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Victor Antonio. He's a top-rated speaker and best-selling author of multiple sales books, including Sales Influence. And he's joining me on this episode of Sales Enablement, episode 762, to talk about how to elevate individual and team sales performance. We start our conversation with this provocative quote from Victor. Quote, At times, it seems to me that the more we engage with and depend on technology, the less we engage and connect with clients. Now, is that the case? And if it is, where do we go from here to enable sellers to connect and have better and more productive sales conversations with their buyers? Well, stay tuned for all that and more. But before we get to Victor, I want to let you know that all of us who work to produce this podcast are incredibly grateful for all of you who support us by listening to the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and most importantly, subscribing to this show and giving us your feedback in the form of a rating and a review. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Victor, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Andy. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to meet you uh, somewhat virtually, but as we were just talking before the show, we hadn't, had not had the opportunity to meet.
1: No, and I, as I mentioned uh, at the pre-show is that I kept hearing your name. People were shocked that I didn't know who you were. So you're like some celebrity I didn't know about and I felt like ashamed. Like, who is this guy named Andy? I don't know. But anyway, so I'm here,
0: finally. Yeah. Very as I tell my wife, I'm very famous in a very small circle. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) So it's yeah, it's it's great because I think we like have you here because I think we are anxious to share thoughts on a number of topics that I think we are concerned about in common. And and one that you've written about and you've talked about is this concern about declining sales performance. You know we all see the the same stats mm. that come from the various industry reports, whether it's CSO insights or whatever. And just interested what your thoughts are is why that why that's happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always talk about that sales will always be known as pre-internet and post-internet. You know, pre-internet. We had all the information as salespeople, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, customers were willing to talk to us a little longer. You can build a relationship, so forth and so on. Fast forward, we have this thing called the internet now. And Google came out with a study years ago. It's called the ZMOT study, <laughs> yeah. a Zero Moment of Truth study, right. which you're familiar with, right? right? Yep. And my favorite number in there is that, and I bet you that number has gone up, is that on average, people will look at 10 sources of information before deciding to reach out to contact the vendor, which means Again, depending on which numbers you read, the customer could be anywhere between 57 to 90% into the buying cycle, which means they're a little smarter these days. And I think that's what makes sales a little more challenging now, is that salespeople have to be more domain experts than ever before in order to provide that quote-unquote insight we often hear about.
0: Yeah, I don't really think I see much evidence of them becoming more domain experts, right? I mean, I... I <laughs> Yeah, well, I do what the topic when I want to get into it is like, because this, this show, you know, so I look back on all my my past episodes, 755 or whatever, is that, you know, what we're really talking about is we're talking about how do we enable sellers, and this is what you spend your life doing as well, is how do we enable sellers to sell to the best of their abilities, right? Mm-hmm. And Correct. yet we seem to have this, this gap, right? We've got this declining performance because, you know, this is all. Occurring at the same time, we're in this golden age of sales technology—that you know, unprecedented levels of, of technology coming into sales, which you know some can be very beneficial for sellers. Um, and yet, we're seeing declining performance. It's it's so. I know there's not a, a connection between the right? two. It's,
1: it's kind of like it's kind of like well, we got more tools, we have more knowledge, we have more access, we have more abilities to reach out and touch somebody, whether it's video conference, you can call, so forth and so on. But why are the numbers declining? And, and I still go back to that customers are more, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest misconceptions or misperceptions is that salespeople are no longer needed as much because, you know, consumers have a lot of information. And I think that's the biggest error. Absolutely. I think, like, yeah, I think salespeople are now more valuable than ever mm-hmm. because there's so much information out there. There's so much content out there that now buyers are actually confused. And it takes a great salesperson, I go back to the domain expert piece, to actually help them clarify their thinking in order to make a decision. Because what are they trying to avoid? And you know this, I'm preaching to the choir. They're trying to avoid making a bad decision. Because now, you know some of these investments are kind of big, especially if it's a B2B type enterprise level sale. So people want to be careful in terms of how they invest. But all this uncertainty has created a, a greater dependence on salespeople. And I think where they fall short and I, and I want to emphasize, it was a stat that was put out by, are you familiar with Corporate Visions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, right. And I was listening to a speech years ago, a couple of years ago, by, by Tim Reister, one of their researchers, great presenter. And he actually talked about, you know, that on average, across industry study, 40% of all deals are won. Again, cross-industry, across different industries. Are won, you said? Are won. In other words, they won the deal, yeah. right? That means 60% are lost. What's interesting is when they looked at the sixty percent that were lost, twenty percent went to the competitor, mm-hmm. the other forty percent were no decisions. Right. So if you think about it, your biggest competitor is, as he quotes it, the status quo, the no decision.
0: Yeah, I've seen a study that shows that is right. as high as eighty percent
1: could be. Which begs the question: so why there's why is there a no decision? And that's because it is the anxiety versus the certainty that the customer is experiencing. And if a salesperson isn't able to go in there and clarify that thinking, guide them, and reassure them, they're not going to make a decision. Buyers' regret is always looming around the corner. I'd rather not make a decision than make a decision and be wrong.
0: I think, yeah, well, risk is certainly a huge factor, right? That, that perception of sure. risk on the part of, of sure. the buyers. But I also think that, that part of that, too, is that, and this, this still, I guess, is a factor of the risk, but is that where sellers, they don't give the customer help guide the customer to a point where there's a compelling reason for them to make a change, risk notwithstanding. And and so what I see oftentimes with when customers who don't reach a decision, and you do an analysis of the deal and the opportunity, is you look back and say, well, yeah, we we never really qualified them, right? right. We never we never got to the point where the customer said, yeah these are the outcomes we, wanted to, we want to achieve with this, this investment in your product or solution. And we know what that outcome is going to mean for us in, in terms of hard dollars. We've quantified what those outcomes are. And for me, that's like this critical point, right? If you haven't got your prospect to quantify what the outcome is going to mean to them in dollars, they're not going to close. Correct.
1: And, I mean, and there's there's two components in there. If you go further, and your point is dead on. And, and But push it just a little further. Sure. That even if I quantified the sale and I, I actually created a magnitude of that sale. Look, I mean, it's not just a, a little bit of improvement. It's a big improvement. Mm-hmm. Something that has some magnitude. There's also this, and I think this is where the brakes are being applied, there's this perceived effort slash risk. And I'll give you a perfect example. And I talk about this in my talks. It's, just, it's a stupid story, but true and really draws attention to what happens. Uh, about a year ago, I had a small little leak in my uh, bathroom. I heard it from my office. I go, what is that? I heard this little tick, tick, tick. And I go, what is that? So I go over there to the sink and open up the bottom of the sink, open up the dirt arch. And all of a sudden, I see this thing just dripping, tick, you know, that whole thing. And then I looked at it and I go, hmm, now if you're a real man, what do you do? Well, if you're like me Call and a you're not plumber. mechanically inclined, <laughs> you go to the kitchen, and you get a bowl. And so I went to the kitchen and got a bowl. And I stuck the bowl under there and said, look, wife, it's fixed. Right. And so a couple of weeks go by, the, the droplets get faster and faster. So what do you do? You get a bigger bowl. So I went and got the bigger bowl slid it right under there. Finally, you get to the point where you can't stick a bucket in there. Mm-hmm. You got to tell yourself, I got to fix this thing. And so, sure enough, I mentally psyched myself up to go over to Home Depot to get all the supplies. The next day, I'm going to go in. Andy, I'm going to get this thing fixed. Man, I go in there, Andy, the next day after, you know, drank my coffee, go in, and it's like five minutes into this thing, bam, it is fixed. It is PVC'd up. It is fixed. And the first question that comes to mind is, well, why didn't I do that like two, three weeks ago? Mm -hmm. And what it was is that there was this imagined fear in my head. Mm-hmm. Because based on my past experiences, things have never gone well with plumbing. Yeah. So yeah. This, this imagined fear is there. So that part of the brain, the primal brain, that, that amygdala was right. lighting up like a Roman candle. And what is the job of a salesperson? Because it's, a, a customer is thinking the same thing. The perceived effort and the imagined fear. Our job in selling is to assuage the customer's concern that it's going to be okay. Here's the blueprint. Here's how we're going to do it in five easy steps. And that's where I think we fail in assuaging the customer's concern that we're going to be able to do that for them.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating point because, again, as having a conversation with somebody else about this is, because now you're sort of talking about trust, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the question we were just debating was, really, how much trust does a buyer Need to have in a seller in order to make the decision, right? To buy from them. Um, yeah, I, I use the analogy as, you know, I know my customer trusts me enough to buy from me, but they probably don't trust me enough to babysit their kids. So, right. so, so what is this level <laughs> of trust that, that we really have? Is it, is it really trust or is it this, you know, because we're talking about the perception of risk, is it really the perception of trustworthiness that right. is really this, this, uh, Attribute we're trying to develop in the mind of the buyer.
1: I, I think that that what you just said is brilliant because it's that perception of trust, right? And I was reading a book by I interviewed about two weeks ago. Uh, Jonah Berger mm-hmm. has a new book called The Catalyst. He's coming on the show and and in a couple weeks. Yeah, okay, he's a great guy. And in there, I told him I said, you know, you're doing the, you're doing a great definition of trust, but I don't think you meant to do it, but I, I perceived it because it was kind of one of those just statements in the book. Mm-hmm. Was that he was emphasizing? And his definition of trust, the way he defined it, lined it up in the book. I go, I like this one. The first one, the first, it's a two-part trust factor. The first part is you empathize. You understand my pain. You really understand what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And then, plus, you also have my best interest in mind. Right. You know what I mean? If yep. you can put those two together, understand, and, have, and I know that you have my best interest in mind, then I trust you. you yeah. Know, the problem is there's no meter over somebody's head to say, hey, I think you've reached that point. Where you've crossed that you know the threshold, yeah,, I trust you, right it'd be nice, but there isn't. but I well, think empathy and knowing you have their best interests in mind, being able to communicate that effectively is the challenge
0: right, so there's a couple of things you said there I think really critical for people to understand at least my point of view one is is um, you know there are various forms of empathy, and hmm. you know compassionate, compassionate empathy, which is the one that most people most often talk about, it's, you know I, I feel you know how you feel, I understand. But you talk about understand, right? This is the thing what salespeople oftentimes don't do is we don't to me true empathy comes from when I understand why somebody feels the way they do. If I have that understanding, as you talked about then, that is that's important. And then the second part you brought about is, yeah, to think we have our best their best interest in mind is are we completely transparent in our motivations for why we're talking to the 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 buyer in the first place? And this is this is something that you know you've seen undoubtedly Millions of times, like I have, is that you know we go in and we, we tell the customer, God, we're here to help you. We're here to serve you. We're here to serve you. And then we get to Thursday on the last week of the month, that's like, but here is ten percent or twenty percent off to make sure you buy this month, right? And suddenly right. our motivations become very clear. It's no longer about yes. serving them; it's about us.
1: Isn't that something? Uh, there, there's so many contradictions in what we do. And when you look at a lot of sales training programs out there, I'm often amazed at you know how. I believe in the philosophy, slow down to speed up. We've all heard Mm -hmm, that, right? mm -hmm. Slow down to speed up. In other words, really talk to the customer, really try to understand them. And I think one of the key things I think the best of the best do is they're not afraid to lose the sale right? by being forthright. Like, you know, and so I always talk about uh, people don't have a sales problem. They have a prospecting problem. And that is that if you had enough prospects, you'd sell differently. But when you only have one or two prospects, you sell desperately. And said another way, mm-hmm. if I have 100 customers lined up waiting to see me, I'm going to be like, all right, let's qualify hard. Yep. Those who can afford or need my product on this side, those who can't, please move to that side and come back at the time. You sell differently. And removing that, if salespeople were to sell that way with no fear of losing the customer and just being forthright and looking out for their best interest, empathizing, looking out for best interest, and just laying it down right down the middle, I think they'd be a surprise how many people would just come towards them. You know what I mean? How many mm-hmm. people would want to buy from them?
0: Yeah, well, I think that the, sort of the, maybe the corollary to what you were saying is, is that, yeah, when you can teach people to, to be that way and to sell that way, is it very quickly highlights the fact that, wow, I need to go get more prospects. right? Because right. even if they don't have enough, when they find it and they can teach them to understand that's how they should be addressing and helping the customer, then they get that mm-hmm. motivation to go out and get more prospects because, wow, I get this.
1: Yeah, sometimes I think people don't truly understand the value of what they're really offering. Do you know what I mean? They mm-hmm. don't understand the 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 impact, the ripple effect of what their product or service can do for a company. For example, I sell sales training, mm-hmm. right? That's one of my products, and so I, I believe when I sell it. I'm not looking at selling the package. I'm looking at how how it's going to impact your bottom line, how it's going to increase your revenue, reduce your costs, or expand your market share. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at how I'm helping you not only stay in business, but keep people employed within your company. And those people in your company have families. So guess what? The fact that I'm helping you help your company, helps families, that's the way I view the value of it. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind rushing to somebody's help. Here, I can help you sell more. I can help you generate more revenue where I, sometimes I think people don't understand their real value. They just see the price, not the value.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, Isn't some of that maybe tied to also is they don't see their own value in, in the context of what they're selling? I mean, I'm Correct. a huge, huge believer that, that uh, based on my own experience as well as experience of many, many others I've worked with is that you know, people still buy from people. And you know, if you're not a person of value, doesn't really matter what the product and service does. You'll lose the deal all the time if you're not a person of value, if you're selling a Absolutely. product that's high value. And people, we're still having a hard time convincing sellers that, that this is of paramount importance, more so than your sales process or anything else that you're doing.
1: Ethics above all else. You know, ethics above all else in terms of how you sell. And I think the, you know, in, in a world where we've reached, I don't know, in the world of Six Sigma, where all products are almost the same, all services are almost the same. There are no real differentiators, unless you're an Apple or Google or somebody mm-hmm. different. Every product or service is the same. And so I truly believe we've entered an era, Andy, where the salesperson, as you're pointing out, is the differentiator. Mm-hmm. And if they don't see their value in that process as part of that sales equation, if I may, then I think they're missing out because they are the differentiators today.
0: Yeah, and I think part of it is that, is that increasingly we've, we've Told salespeople to focus on the wrong things, and part of this, I think, is you know, part of the way that we increasingly are selling through inside sales and sales specialization and so on, and sort of you know fixation on activity versus you know quantity of activities versus quality of activities and so on. But um, you know, Gartner, I don't know if you remember, they did their buyer enablement study a couple of years ago, and they came out with this what they call their spaghetti diagram, this complex flowchart of a buyer's process. Yeah, I think I saw it. Yeah, I think I saw it. Yeah. And, a, and what they highlight is that the buyers don't have this sort of linear stage-based process to go through to buy. They have four jobs they need to complete. And they don't necessarily happen in in series. And there's problem identification, solution exploration, building requirements, choosing a vendor. And increasingly, my belief is that we train sellers to only focus on the last one, choosing a vendor. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, to me, the horses out of the barn at that point. Because what we want to do is focus on those first three, because that's how we influence how they're going to solve their problem. And if we can influence how they solve their problem, then when they get to choosing who they're going to solve it with, we have the inside track. But I instead, agree. when we just it's, focus it's on nasty. on being competing at selecting the vendor stage, then we compete on price.
1: Every time. It's the bake-off at the end. Right. And I think what's, you know, back to the original question, why you know, why are the numbers so low? Why do they keep declining in terms of close rates and winnings? Um, also think about, you know, Andy, the number of people involved in the decision-making process today. Mm-hmm. That number continues to increase. Which now, you know, the if you remember back in the day, uh, what was the book? I think it was Strategic Selling, the Miller mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, You know, where you know you can find the management buyer, the user buyer, the technical buyer, the economic, and, economic buyer, yeah, economic buyer. You know, and so you have those four types of buyers. But today, and then you find their motivations and their why buys, and you address those motivation, those dominant buying motives, and then you sell to those. Do- well, the thing is, now you got ten people in the room, eleven people in the room. You know, and all of a sudden it becomes quite complex. Add to that what you just said, that it's never a linear process, you know, A, B, C, identification, you know, uh, assess what's going on, what needs to be done, and then begin to narrow down, do the search, find vendors, now bring them in, qualify them, let's have a bake up, let's talk about it. It's never that clean. And so I think from a B2B perspective, it's become so complicated that a lot of buyers are actually doing the research on their own. And this mm-hmm. is where it gets really interesting because now, unless you're an aggressive salesperson—by aggressive, I mean very active in reaching out to customers to try to insert yourself early on into the buying cycle. By that, I mean when the problem is still being identified. Yep. You're not gonna. You're not gonna close the deal. You're at the mercy at the end of the of the buyer at the end asking for a discount or some type of you know.
0: Yeah. Well, not this giveaway. Right. And I learned this through my own experience. Or. I... Sold big, large, complex satellite communication systems for a long time, and I just remember early in my career, I was working on one of my first deals with that, and I remember calling my boss after I was overseas uh, in Europe, and I remember calling my boss and said, "Yeah, we're going to win this deal," mm-hmm. and it was six months before I got the <laughs> order, but and we won it right because I knew at that point that going forward they were going to base their requirements mm. on our product and All our right. services.
1: If you can so, get your product spec'd in early on, that's you got right, it, man. And that's hey. By the way, I don't know if I told you this, Andy. I don't know if you knew this, but I came from the telecom side. No, I didn't. I did. I started out as a. Uh, my background is I started out as an electrical engineer, ah. got an MBA, and I started actually designing wireless systems, and then moved into fiber optics. Got and, it. You know hybrid fiber, coax, all those wonderful things, and actually sold some satellite equipment, some transponder, transceivers, all that good stuff. So oh, yeah, I'd know about getting your product spec in.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you came from the technical side as a history major, but, um, but yeah, it, was <laughs> it opened my eyes at that point to say, well, okay, well, this is what I'm trying to do, right? If I can, if I can influence the choice they're making about how they want to solve their problem, Mm-hmm. Then the decision about who they want to solve it with becomes much simpler. And I've got the advantage going into it. It'll still be competitive, but I have the advantage because it's you know, it's designed around you know my ideas and our, our our product, our service, and so on. and yeah. I, I, you
1: you you know this for a fact already that if you can co-create yeah. the solution with the customer, you're gonna win that deal. I used to tell people every time I got the technical person up with me on the whiteboard, Exactly. I would win the deal. Let's just say the probability was very high I would get the deal because now we were co-creating their solution.
0: Yeah, did you ever read uh, Dan Rome's book, Draw to Win?
1: No, I never even heard of the book, Draw to Win.
0: Draw to Win by Dan Rome, R-O-A-M. And he's been a guest on the show and he's a very smart guy. And he's written several books about drawing and, and business and so on. But this Draw to Win, he gives that exact, you know, precise examples. You know, you may know what your flowchart is going to look like, but mm-hmm. don't draw it all. Stop. Invite the customer up every hey, time. Can you help that. me finish this? Right, just as you said, that becomes so powerful.
1: Yeah. Or just, I always hold the marker out. I say, I'm not understanding something. Can you draw this out for yeah, me? Just exactly. how the network you want exactly. to configure. and they're like, sure. And I'm like, here we go. And so, subtle things, the more you can co create. In fact, I just finished reading um, a book called The Expansive Sale.
0: No, I don't know that one. It's got
1: several authors on that, uh, Corporate Visions, guys. Okay. Uh, And in there, they talked about how, you know, using, uh, they they looked at using PowerPoint versus using big pictures with big words on them on Mm -hmm. the PowerPoint slides versus bullet points. And then the third one was actually drawing. Right. And obviously, when you drew, you know, the credibility went up. Mm-hmm. Engagement went up, so forth and so on. So, the numbers are there that being able to draw things also shows that you have some type of, if I can go back to the phrase, some domain expertise mm-hmm. that you can draw things out. Uh, and I'll give you a perfect example of where I think domain expertise fails. I, I was looking for a drone and they just wanted to buy a bad drone, man. Take, and take so, photos. Yeah, to, to make a long story short, I budgeted $1,200 for this drone, and I've been doing all my research. You know, I went beyond the Google 10 sources. I just started searching, right? I narrowed it down to about three choices. I go over to Best Buy, and I'm looking at the displays. There they are, the three drones, right? And I'm thinking, okay, one of these three, I'm going home with one of these bad boys. My, my credit card is ready to leap out of my pocket. I am ready to buy, Andy. You see what I'm at? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this guy comes over. He's like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, big giant dude. He says, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm thinking of buying one of these drones. Uh, but let me just kind of you know, read what's in front of me, and then uh, if I need your help, I'll call you. He says, I'll be right over there if you need me. I said, great. So sure enough, I narrowed it down to two drones. Size became a factor, one of the new variables. I said, you know what? Let's look at size. Let's go with the smaller ones. So sure enough, I called the guy over. I'm ready. Tell me the difference between these two drones. I'm ready to make a decision. mm mm-hmm. And he starts reading, I swear to you, he starts reading the little, uh, tag on the shelf. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that. I can read. I said, I said, but beyond that, what, why is one better than the other? What would you say? What is your opinion as an expert? He goes, well, and he mumbled a couple of things. I go, wait a minute. Do you even have a drone? He goes, no, I don't. I said, were well, you trained on the drones. He goes, no, I wasn't. And then it was a very awkward moment. Like you are no use to me here. Mm-hmm. And so my level of certainty was very low. So I walked out of the store, credit card still in check, 1200 bucks. just walked out the door.
0: Did you buy it online? That
1: to me epitomized what's going on today.
0: Did you end up buying it online?
1: I ended up buying it online. Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> you know what I did? I did the whole spindle effect. I went on Amazon, looked at the reviews, read tons of reviews, and eventually came to my own conclusion.
0: Right. Because I couldn't
1: find a salesperson to help me. It was too frustrating.
0: Yeah, and undoubtedly that we have cases of that in in B two B world. But most, to your point earlier, is anything with any sort of complexity, it's not transactional, it's the buyers because of the risk that you and I spoke about before, they want the salesperson there to help them, yeah. help them make a purchase decision. I, I think fundamentally, that is a salesperson's job. If they really think about it, it's it's, and I've written about this in, in my book. Is your job is to help a buyer make a purchase decision. That's it.
1: That's it. I think CEB came out with an interesting study, and I'm gonna see if I can recite off the top of my head. CEB, which is now Gartner, Gartner, right? Yeah. And I think it. I think this study was in. Do you remember the book, The Challenger Sale, which came yeah. out in I think December sure. of 2011, something like that. And in there, they talked. They had this slide off the top of my head. I think it was about customer loyalty. What drive drivers of customer loyalty? And I think it was uh, I think it was 19 percent was brand loyalty, which shocked me. 19 percent mm-hmm. was brand loyalty. Nine percent was service to price ratio, in other words, pricing. Nineteen uh, percent was service and delivery, mm-hmm. right? But the big one, the difference, fifty plus percent was the buying experience. Yep. And then they go ahead and define the buying experience: help me navigate, make alternatives, avoid making wrong decisions, so forth and so on, make it easy to buy, blah blah blah. And it just brought me back when I saw that slide. I go, wow, brand is no longer the dominant factor for buying. It's a mm-hmm. consideration, but the buying experience overall is what people are missing. And I think when that guy couldn't help me, he ruined my buying experience.
0: Right. And one of the key things you just spoke about is people formulating their choices. And mm-hmm. so there's been a bunch of studying done on how people make decisions and you know, it's, it, this one author, it's a guy named Paul Nutt who was at Ohio State University has written about this, is he's saying that, that when people make decisions, they go through two steps first one is I'm going to choose how I want to solve the problem or Mm -hmm. whether I am going to solve the problem. And then the second part is, okay, who am I going to solve it with? And so when people go to do that first one, how they're going to solve it, that's when they look at their options. What are my options? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, if you can't help them, if you can't be one of those options, if you can't give them enough information to be one of the options, you're never going to get the the second decision. So, yeah, this is where the credibility comes in. This is where I mean, a lot of things you talk about in your your uh, smart framework, which I really liked, which I want to talk about for a second, is, is, yeah, this is if people can be enabled to perform in those situations, to understand what their real job is, and it's, it's not at that point, it's not to get the order, it's to help the customer make the right choice about how they're going to solve their problem, then you're more right. like then you're more likely to get the order
1: every time. It, again, I think it, it, you know we can, we can say the word empathize a hundred times. I mean, but at the, that's the core. Do mm-hmm. you really understand what I'm trying to achieve? Yeah. Every person is asking, you know, that's the, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? If you understand what I'm trying to achieve, then I know you get me. That, I know you understand me. Right. But yeah, too often we, we go into transactional mode, though,
0: Andy. You know what I mean? We I just do want
1: to, we got to get the sale. We want to get the sale. Get the sale. Close that deal.
0: Well, I think that, that one of the things that we don't stress enough with, with sellers, or it doesn't stress at all, is that, you know, we always talk about, creating value for the buyer. Understanding them is huge value for the buyer. To your point, if we really understand, if we do the right discovery, if we make sure we confirm our understanding, we ask the right follow-up questions, we ask confirmation questions, mirroring questions, all those things,
1: mm-hmm.
0: understanding, and to their point, they were, your point, they really get me, right? They get it. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That's huge value for, for the buyer. That, that's, that deals with the risk. It deals with all these other things we've spoken about today.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the irony that during the day, you're a salesperson, but at the end of the day, you're a consumer. And you, if you ask somebody, how do you like to be sold? Because people say, well, mm-hmm. how do I sell effectively? And ask yourself, how do you like to be sold? And the way you like to be sold is how you should sell, but it's not. It's usually mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you ask a lot of people, how do you want to be sold? Well, I want a buyer to be informed, or a seller to be informed. I want them to be direct, to be honest. And, you know, again, not look out for their interest, look out for mine. Great. Boom. There's your instructions. Go sell now.
0: Oh, it escapes a lot of people. I, I tell a story in my books about uh, the CEO. This is a number of years ago, but he had a CEO client and he was just bitching at me, not about me, but he had just been trying to reach some company I couldn't fit, remember which one, on their phones. And he got stuck in sort of this phone tree. And he was like, that's ah, the worst customer service. This, you know, how do they sell anything? Da, 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 slams the phone down. So I pick up my cell phone. I dial a number. I hand it to him. It's his company. It does the exact same thing. <laughs> and their sales yeah. voicemail box was full. And no one was ever paying attention to it, answering it. And it finally sunk in with him. I was like, oh, yeah, I see. I see the the thing here is yeah. I yeah, should it's, want to it's
1: interesting that We can see the error in other people's ways, but our own.
0: Yeah. So yeah. it works out. So um oh, did want to spend a few months on the SMART framework you have for sellers. Cause I think it it's not just a way to assess sellers. I think it's a way to really enable sellers, right? If you look at so smart mm-hmm. is an acronym for skills, motivation, adaptability, resources, and time. Mm-hmm. And um so tell us a little bit how you came up with that.
1: Well, I was looking at, you know, um, uh, you know, what is it that a salesperson needs in today's market? And it's more, I I guess when I came up with the smart framework, it's more of a a holistic approach Mm -hmm. to what you need to do to be a great salesperson. So, you know, we know that it's always about skill and will. We've all heard that phrase, right? Skill. And then there's will, right? A lot of people have skill, but they don't have the will. And the will part is actually very interesting because I think you can develop a lot of skill, but the will piece is what do you have to do consistently on a day-to-day basis to actually be successful. And I think that, if you were to ask me, what is the one thing, you mentioned it earlier, you, you, you briefly said it, but I picked up on it because you understand it, that a lot of times we measure activities, right? Mm-hmm. But also, you know, beyond activities, we look for high leverage activities. But then beyond high leverage activities, it's consistently doing those high leverage activities right. to make you successful. So the SMART, the smart model or framework was just a way for people to understand these are the different skill sets. Because we're just a uh, an aggregation of different skill sets that come into play.
0: Well, I want to dissect it just a little bit. I mean, because first of all, you start with skills, and this is—you say you sell sales training, but you know, there's there's the sales training of the way we currently do it doesn't really work. I mean, it's always a question I have, and and yeah, mm. I'm not <laughs> no offense on yours. It's just like. Mm. Yeah, we study CEOs, say they don't find any value in sales training. We know that that we've known for 150 years that, you know, people forget 90% of what they learn in a classroom setting within 30 days, all that stuff. Is yeah, we're really approaching skill development the right way. And combining with that, the reluctance of many sales managers, frontline sales managers, to get involved in sort of the personal development side of of their reps to, to help them. Is is there a better way?
1: There are you know, the, the best way to learn is obviously, you know, you know, without practicing in front of your client. Mm-hmm. Without practicing on the client is is, you know, role playing. That to me has been the biggest help in my career. Being okay. able to sit down and say, let us talk let's have a, a a simulated discussion. Because I think what happens when we look at skill sets, there let's kind of really let's 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 go ahead and slice that one up a little bit. Sure. Right? Skill are the you know, because you can look at the mechanics of it of actually presenting and selling, right? And so we can talk about the soft skills. And the soft skills are, you know, your body language, you know, mm-hmm. your presence, you know, all the wonderful things. Listen carefully, you know, you know, two ears, one mouth, use them in that proportion type of thing, right? Those are the soft skills. And, but when we look at soft skills, then we have to say, what are the, I'll call these the response skills. Is that the response skills is, you just ask me a question. How do I respond? And I, and I think there's a skill set in that. There's a skill in how do I respond to a question that was just asked? Do I just answer it? Or do I clarify then ask? And I think you need to develop that. That isn't something that's automatic. That's something that you have to The clarify and ask
0: part, yeah. What's that? To clarify first, then ask a follow-up question. or to just respond. Right? Too
1: often we're like just want to jump in. And mm-hmm. so that's a skill, right? Listen, absorb, reflect, and then deliver something. And if you have to clarify, go ahead and do that. And unless you practice that as a skill, you don't develop that. Mm-hmm. I'll move over to, you know, you know that, 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 um, what was it Albert Morabian, you know, that, that phrase on the uh, study on liking 55% of whether I like you or not is visual mm-hmm. 38% is based on my voice, my tone, and only 7% is actual content or verbiage. Right. And the one that always stuck out to me was the 38% of whether I like you or not is based on tone voice. Mm-hmm alignment right and so there's another skill set and you have to be very conscious of this right. and it can be learned that when you go down look when I'm in Florida I talk real fast when I moved to Georgia things begin to slow down so did I right you know what I mean so these are things that you have to learn these are skills that you can learn whether it's you you know we can talk about mirroring and all those wonderful things but at the end of the day are you conscious it's almost like being mindful of what you're doing Absolutely. in the moment when you're selling, and and that is a skill that that has to be learned, but can only be learned through I guess feedback, reflection, and it takes time. And that's why I say selling is a skill, just like speaking in public is a skill. Mm-hmm. There's a way you you and I both know that I can say something one way and just flip a couple of words and it has a totally different impact. Right, and the ability. To, you know, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, but to me, when I when I use the word skill, I mean all of it. Right. You know, not just learn, hey, walk in, say hi, shake his hand, you know, ask a couple of questions, you know, that's that's the mechanical stuff. It's the the stuff in between, the soft stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I sort of look at a hierarchy of behaviors, practice consistently become habits, practice consistently become skills. And because you know, it's never going to be a skill if you don't practice it, right? <laughs> but, but I think that, that yeah we we tend to want to diminish the importance of a lot of the soft skills these days just because you know people feeling so pressured to you know do a certain quantity of activities and so on. And and it's like okay, well, how do we how do we train people to slow down? Because this is this is to your point is so right. Is Selling has to be a deliberate act. If you're just scripted and you're just reading off the script and you're just trying to follow the playbook and you're not putting any thought into it, you're not going to get anywhere, right? It's, yeah, it's hard to, be to find in, mental spaces, it? Yeah.
1: It's hard to find, you know, the thing is, as you're pointing out, you know, you're under a lot of pressure to hit those numbers, make those dials, get those meetings set up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so all of a sudden that's, that's what you're being measured on. Uh, this morning I was, I was uh, writing up a podcast When I was talking about measuring the wrong KPIs, Mm -hmm. because when you measure the wrong KPIs, you get the wrong results. And also, salespeople are not stupid. They know how to game the system. If you're going to measure me on the number of calls, well, hell, I'll just call anybody. If you're going to measure me on new client acquisition, well, hell, I'll just get a bunch of clients. I don't care about the quality. And and so, you know, sometimes we're focusing on the wrong things, those activities, because we believe they're tangible, they're metrics. Let's measure those. But the unintended consequences are always there, as you well know.
0: Well, so I'll ask you an interesting question, or I think is an interesting question. Is, is is my show, I can, I can ask it. Is um, to that point, is quota an outdated metric?
1: That's a really good question. That's a really good question.
0: I would say no,
1: because. Uh, I believe that there has to be some type of aspirational goal to go after, right? But I would also allow some, I'll call this a uh, a ventilating modifier, to let it ventilate a little bit. Mm-hmm. In other words, allow for other options. And that is, we could argue that I'd rather, I'm more concerned, and again, did another podcast on this, where sometimes we're so short term that we're not looking at the customer lifetime value. Okay. So then I would argue that Maybe quota isn't important, and maybe customer lifetime value is a bigger metric to look at. For example, uh, in my new book, I have a new book coming out. It's called Upselling is the New Prospecting. Mm -hmm. Upselling to your existing customers. And so in there, I highlight how Starbucks has a 20-year lifetime value. So they're not looking at the immediate number, so mm-hmm. to speak. They're looking at 20 years' worth of possibilities here. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I think directly you're asking me, Victor, Is it are we looking at now numbers every year, or are we really looking at the business as we move forward? That's why I think there's an argument to be made that on one hand, quotas are important, but is customer lifetime value more important over the long run? Right. And we could have another debate on that. And, but I think both are valid, depending on the industry and the business.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd have you think about. We can talk about this another time because we're running out of time. It's, on, by the way, it's a great question, here, though.
1: It's a great question, though, because you're 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 challenging one of the uh, you know central one of the uh, tenets
0: of selling. Yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're basically saying it's almost, it's almost like a well, very they... socialist idea, if I might throw in
0: that because well, actually, it's like I, actually I think it's the opposite, right? I think that the I think that quota has become sort of this this uh, central plan, and mm-hmm. that. Um, suppresses performance and overall performance measured in terms of dollars sold. So, just to give an example, a couple points. One is, you know, it's a British economist, Charles Goodhart, who formulated this law called Goodhart's Law. And he did this in the 60s, and there's been studies on it that have proven it out. Which Goodhart's Law says, in short, that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. Hmm. Yeah. Because what you do is you optimize your process to achieve the target. Yeah. When and then so, when, as
1: they say, when the when the metric is the mission, the mission is is no longer valid. You know, fact, what, right? because just
0: said just said a different way, and and so yeah. what becomes self fulfilling prophecy, right? If we have our central, you know, five year plan, you know, Soviet style, and say hey, this is what quota is going to be, we know on balance people aren't going to exceed it because that's what they're aiming at. Instead of saying, what if we had a my favorite. Example, this is what if we measured true productivity for sellers? So your productivity, you have a productivity factor. You know, you, you sell X number of dollars of revenue per hour of selling time. Mm-hmm. If I compensated you on you improving the number of dollars per hour of sales time mm-hmm. that you generated, there's no limit to what you'd do.
1: Right, right. Uh, so you know you you've seen the sales velocity equation right? Take the number of opportunities multiplied by the close rate multiplied by the average deal size divided by the sales cycle. That's how fast you're selling, mm-hmm. right? And that's a metric you could use. If you could increase your sales velocity, then that's another way of, uh, of measuring that. So I do like that. I do like I, I love the I love the question about challenging a quota. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I, I, I you're, you're, I'm going to really think about that tonight. Going, you know, what would replace it, and what would make more sense? A great question, Andy.
0: Well, also, just one last point too is to think about: is you know, what if sales cycles really aren't a duration of time, but they are a quantity of time. They're what? they are quantity of time. Your sales uh, cycle is really right. not three months long. It's how many hours did you spend in those three months? Working engaged on with the buyer. That.
1: Great point, actually. Great point. Because you're right. If we don't measure it by, in other words, we switch how we measure it. Yeah. As opposed to days. Because the, the duration. That, I, I've, never, I've, never, I've never heard that. The duration is an heard artifact. Anybody talk.
0: Right? The duration of time is an artifact. Yeah, it could right. be It could be yeah. six months because the customer needs six months to go through it. But how much time did we have to invest during right. those six months?
1: Right. Yeah. So in other words, it, it's interesting because oh, yeah, it's a great, man. It's a really good. That's a mind bender right there in a good way. That From a seller standpoint, from the person buying, they have a sales cycle, how long it took. But really, we should look at our duration and investment of time because from there, yeah, yeah, because in there we can also extract opportunity costs in case we're working on the wrong thing. And how
0: effective we were and the interactions we had with the buyer and all that. So,
1: by the way, to to your point on the quotas and making unrealistic quotas, you and I came from a, a space where people would give us quotas willy nilly. Yeah, You know, just, you know, they just kind of came up with it. They had, they had a top number and then you to distribute to pull exactly. that. That's how it used to work. And I think the, 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 the downside of that, well, there were many downsides, but one big downside was that if the salesperson didn't believe they could do it, there was no line of sight, so to speak, mm-hmm. using a technology term there that they would actually feel defeated and give up and maybe even quit. Right. And so churn rates and quota, you know, unrealistic quotas and churn rate, it'd be interesting to see what the correlation between those two are.
0: I am yeah, it'd be interesting. I bet you there there is, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I I think yeah. quotas are still, by and large, arbitrarily set. Uh <laughs> I would agree with you. Because so. every time
1: I ask them, well, how would you come up with that number? Well, you know, we took this, we took the average of that, and yeah, yeah eh, fingers by 10, to the Took
0: away 20%, and there we go. Yeah. And yeah. they're wondering why they're not hitting their targets. So,
1: And so it's it's this irrational exuberance to keep growing, almost as if quotas are anti-gravity. They should never go down, they should always go up.
0: Well, I had, I had this conversation with CEOs that I was presenting to a group of CEOs at a, a, a private equity firm, you know, the meeting of their portfolio of CEOs. And mm-hmm. I said, well, so raise your hand if you're going to raise quota next year. And everybody raises their hands. I said, oh, great. Said, um, you know, it's like 10%, you know, 15%. We sort of did a rough average. I said, great. So have you trained your salespeople to be 15% better this year?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, everybody says, like, wow, well.
0: <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> there's a correlation well. between. Raising yeah. quota and making our people better? Oh, yeah. no. So, that's interesting. That's interesting.
1: I've used that before. And it's like, yeah, they're like, well, what, what, what did you just say to me? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And the answer is no, obviously. They, they hadn't thought about it. They just said, go get us more
0: money. Right. Yeah. And no, no attention given to, well, let's improve the asset that's going to generate that extra revenue. So, yeah. Victor, I've got to take off, but that's um, fascinating. Love, love our conversation. We'll have to make sure we do it again.
1: Yeah, we we come from the same space and background, so yeah, we'll have to do part two again. We have to do part two. We got go to go. We got to finish the the framework eventually. How's yeah,
0: well, that? that's true. We only got through the the S of the smart, <laughs> so we'll definitely come back because I I really enjoy that. I I think that uh, those are the five key things because skills, motivation, adaptability. Adaptability is huge. Yeah, you know, we yes. we sort of touched on it several times here today, but adaptability is huge, um, especially because. Again, people are so scripted these days that when they hit a moment where they need to be adaptable, they don't know how to. That's correct. So, all right, we'll talk about that. Victor, it's been great talking to you, and uh, we'll be talking again soon.
1: Thank you, Eddie. Appreciate it.
0: Okay, folks, thanks for listening. We're so grateful for your support for the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes and leave us a five star rating. You can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. Me and my team would really appreciate it. So, thank you so much. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.